My friends, the great experiment. There is no curse, John. Well, the white twin of heaven has come to castrate the sun. <laughs> castrate the sun. By God, if they didn't. Welcome to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. It's week two of Greatest Trek Spring Break. <laughs> this might be the lowest low, right? Oh, come on. You're actually going to come out against this film we're here to discuss today? Well, between you and me, Adam, I found this film to be wacky doodle. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I don't want to get to the review just <laughs> just no. yet, but uh, I think that it might be worth unpacking for the Friends of DeSoto, like, wh- why this? Because <laughs> <laughs> we looked high and low for, you know, like, we really wanted to do a non-Seven of Nine role of Jerry Ryan's as one of the things we talked about during this. And we considered a lot of television roles that she's had. She was on two-episode arc of Matlock, Mm -hmm. and you started watching that and and had to stop, from what I understand, because it was not good. How does it feel to make a fool of yourself, Mr. Matlock? Lousy! Right. I mean, I think the goal for the Spring Break Project was to, you know, find things either interesting or promising or early, you know, about some of our favorite actors or creators' careers on New Star Trek. And Jerry Ryan has been working for a long time and yeah. has done a lot of really cool stuff. And I think it was hard to narrow down. Like, are we looking at early Jerry Ryan? Are we looking at like immediately post? Because yeah, she was on like Boston Public after Voyager. Yeah. And did like several seasons of that show in the main cast. Um, she's been on Bosch. She was like one of the villains on, I think, season two of Bosch. Right. And it felt like in in... Our first week of spring break, watching a pilot episode of a TV series felt like the right thing to do, especially as Terry Metalis was involved. But it felt like uh, pivoting into a movie might be a nice, refreshing change. And so I was pretty compelled to do a movie. But when it comes down to what films Jerry Ryan has been in, there isn't too, too much to choose from. She's primarily been a television actor for a long time. And what movies she has been in, I mean, she's been typecast. Let's just say it. Yeah. It's such a double-edged sword to be cast in Star Trek, I think, because it's an annuity in many ways. Mm -hmm. Like, you can live off of going and making appearances at cons and, you know, occasionally getting, you know, brought back in to the franchise as a, you know, special guest performer or whatever, but it also has pigeonholed many, many actors who would have liked to have careers that were not entirely centered on one franchise. And I think that, you know, I've, n- I've never heard Jerry Ryan complain about this specifically, but like famously Nimoy wrote an entire book about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that there's something to the idea that like sci-fi can be a walled garden and if you are an actor who gets into this type of genre work it you know unfortunately i think it it means like the rest of the industry maybe like looks askance on you or or you know considers you to be like a less than and a way that i think sucks it does suck because i think it 
bears mentioning and repeating that the film industry, and I don't just mean that in terms of like writers and directors, but I mean like crews, don't only work on prestige movies and award-winning films. Like the industry generates work for thousands of people and most of those jobs are genre film jobs. Yeah. We got very excited when we saw the poster mm-hmm. for this movie because it's also got another famous Star Trek actor in it, in William Shatner. That's a hell of a combination, right? And it's written by Maurice Hurley. Like the trailer says, from the writer of Star Trek The Next Generation. The writer of Star Trek The Next Generation. Mm. Maurice Hurley. You and I remember Maurice Hurley from Chaos on the Bridge as being irascible, kind of uh, petulant. What are other words you would use to describe him? Prickly? Yeah. He's an asshole. Yeah. Not necessarily aligned with everyone else in what Star Trek means and, and can be. Yeah. It's very interesting because, you know, Shatner is the star and director nominally of chaos on the bridge like he puts himself at the center of the film Uh as the person who is the interlocutor of all of these people that helped make the pilot for tng and you know he's trying to find out the story it's like an oral history of the pilot for tng and how it happened and you know what the business case for it was and what the creative process was and who all was involved behind the scenes and all that. And Maurice Hurley really comes across as an antagonist in that story, in that film. Yeah. I don't care. I'm going to do what I'm going to do and that's the way it is. I would have thought, like if, if you had asked me, hey, do you think Maurice Hurley and Shatner are cool after that movie came out? I would have said, I bet Maurice Hurley fucking hates Shatner and is off being a grump somewhere and Shatner's off being a grump somewhere and they're not friends and they don't like each other. There's something so interesting about the timeline of the production for this film too, because Maurice Hurley died in 2015. They shot this film in 2017 and the film came out in 2019. So I wonder how Maurice Hurley's script was obtained and how much of his original IP is in this versus what may have been reformed into what we get on screen. Hard to know. I I had so many questions about this movie. Ben, it actually inspired me to contact Jared Cohn, the director of this film. No kidding. And I did that yesterday. I was hoping to have a hang with him before we recorded. We actually got to talking because... He's so interesting as a filmmaker. He has had a hand in making 50 films. He's younger than you and me. He is almost entirely like of the genre or exploitation film genre. Many of his most recent films featured Bruce Willis. Right. Back when people were wondering before he announced his mental decline and disease, like back when people were wondering what the fuck was up with Bruce Willis, Jared Cohn didn't know what was up with him. He was just psyched that he was getting to direct films with Bruce Willis. Yeah. I think there's so much about this dude's career I'm interested in asking questions about, not <laughs> limited to the creation of Devil's Revenge, which really, really 
elicited more questions than answers in my mind. Yeah, the uh, filmography for Jared Cohn is really wild. Yeah. I think like some higher budget things in there, like some things that actually showed in theaters, but it's a lot of like the kinds of movies that you see like way over to the right on your Amazon Prime or your Netflix. Well, I mean, you're right. Like Redbox is a producer of many of his films. And Ben, Devil's Revenge had a budget of $22 million. Wow. I tried to chase down where that money came from. The production company for this film is Cleopatra Entertainment and Cleopatra Productions is run by a couple of people who are known for being music producers primarily. And it was really hard to suss out how the business model works for them and how they've been able to expand into this type of genre film to the definition of success that it is. Like, I, I was shocked to see the budget on these films because I thought, like most people would, a low budget creates a greater possibility for a higher investment return, you know? Right, Like, right, to turn right. a profit, it, it's not a high of a bar to clear. I don't know how you do that with a $22 million film that not very many people see. These are, like, those kind of movies that, when you see them, you're like, how did this get made? Yeah, exactly. You could do an entire <laughs> podcast about this type of film. But also, like, that it got made seems to indicate that there is a business model at play. Like, there's no way they make this movie without knowing how they're going to get the 22 million bucks back. Right. So, yeah. Let me just say, I, I tried to make plans to have drinks with Jared Cohn. They didn't end up happening. I, I told him that I would buy him a drink, uh-huh. fully expecting him to buy the drinks, <laughs> <laughs> given how this career has gone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's going great for Jared Cohn. Let's get into this, Ben. Let's see if it's going great for the movie. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into the uh, 2019 film starring William Shatner and Jerry Ryan, Devil's Revenge. I just got to say, like, starting with that budget number, if you're wondering why. Uh-huh. Why Jerry Ryan would say yes, or Bill Shatner would say yes. I mean, Ben, if I gave you $5 million, <laughs> would you be in Devil's Revenge? Sure. Yes, you would. Yeah. You absolutely would. It sounds great. It sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. I think you got to do it. We start in media spelunk with some dudes going down into a cave, and this is This is a film that makes extensive use of the drone footage shot. I sort of thought they might have been like artificially darkening up the mouth of the cave in post. It sort of looks like there's a mat on the cave to make it like dead black. But uh, these guys get down in here. There's a great attention to the lighting in this film in general. It looks better than a lot of these like you know, Asylum and similar mm-hmm. films do. Yeah. I wonder where they shot it. Kentucky. They, they did shoot on location. Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like it just being in a place that I haven't seen, a million, like it's not Vancouver, Toronto, or Los Angeles. Yeah. Or like the outskirts of Atlanta. Yeah. And for that reason, like looks really different from a lot of these movies. So these cavers are going down into this cave and uh, they're they're in like jumpsuits and hard hats. They seem to be experienced cavists. Mm-hmm. They're not Star Trek caves either. Like these caves look like 
really legit and spooky in that way. The lead spelunker, John, who we'll come to know is our main character, even though like Shatner and Jerry Ryan get above the title placement. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. look, I, I want to say like uh, Jason Brooks plays John, who's going to be our main character. And I don't know, if you're a caver, yeah. you want to go with lead cavers who pay in cash. Yeah. If you begin to develop some second thoughts about the cave that you're in. And uh, Jason Brooks is also a Star Trek alum. He was the Romulan helmsman in uh, the J.J. Abrams Star Trek film. That's just great. Yeah. It's all connected. (laughs) See? (laughs) This is a greatest Trek episode. See, genre films aren't a walled garden that is their own like special corner of Hollywood. Oh, boy. This poor guy. Paul takes a look at this pile of rocks and decides to uh, try to scale them down. And this is a 10 foot drop. Oh, yeah. Fuck, that's steep as fuck. That he rolls very slowly over before hitting the ground. And he hits with an energy sufficient to break his ankle. He can't go anywhere. Not, not looking good for Paul. And, and RJ has been like really speaking vociferously against the plan of continuing to go into this cave. John is like literally giving him knots of of cash. I had to say, I have to say the dialogue in this film felt like they really knew that this was not going to be put before the motion pictures rating board before they, you know, released it in whatever capacity they were planning on releasing it cuz everybody just says like fucking shit all the time in this very like Oh, man, it's like the the shackles are off. Let's just say it as much as we want. I wonder if part of how the dialogue was constructed was to make it easily translatable for foreign markets. Interesting. Yeah. Like it also just seemed like maybe they were kind of ad-libbing a lot of the time. Oh, interesting. You're saying Maurice Hurley can't take credit for this dialogue? (laughs) the late Maurice Hurley maybe maybe not I don't want to besmirch the dead but uh, I'm I'm just wondering if like there were definitely scenes that seemed more and less natural in terms of the acting and I felt like when they were swearing it seemed more natural right what's the status I got a broken fucking ankle shit I don't like that John leaves an injured dude down to go deeper into the cave this doesn't seem right but he's driven right he's like he's like obsessed he's a man with an obsession. How many severed limbs do you need to see inside a cave before you decide maybe that's too much? Maybe <laughs> you could call for backup or something. Maybe RJ's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It sure does seem like RJ's right. Yeah. But uh, John appears to find what he's been looking for. He he sees this relic for just a moment before it disappears. Yeah. He comes around a corner and it's no longer a cave, but like a room in a castle or a dungeon. Like the the walls are built of brick Mm -hmm. and there's lots of like kind of true detective season one props lying around. Great cop. Yeah. He sees this relic on the ground. I wonder how much of true detective season one was used as kind of a look list. Yeah. Like on the mood board and the- Yeah. Yeah. He's like reaching over for it and uh, he gets a coughing fit and then the relic just isn't there anymore. It's a freaking mystery, man. Also a mystery is how Paul is suddenly covered in blood when John <laughs> finds him. Uh-oh. He goes, that ankle blew really big. <laughs> <laughs> they should have tried to stop the bleeding before they kept going further into the cave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he's dead. 
RSVP yeah. Paul. Paul dies so quickly in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, and RJ rightfully blames John for leaving him behind. That's what I would do. Yeah, RJ feels that John has been a poor manager and uh, yeah. they have to head out together like trying to escape this cave. They leave the body. <laughs> a lot of bizarre choices like that begin at this moment. The leaving of the body and... We dissolve to later in the day where if you want inspiration for a movie score, I think American Beauty is a good one. I was definitely hearing that kind of vibe throughout the score. I wrote American Beauty soundtrack. What? And drone shot down as well. Cause cause it's like it's the combination of that type of soundtrack and the like top down shots of the cars driving around that's also very American beauty. In my heart. I mean, shooting in Kentucky during this time of year, it's really beautiful. It really is. They really do a great job with these establishing shots. I kind of felt like they just used every single drone shot that they captured in the edit, though, because there's some ones where, like, when you're operating a drone, basically everything is servos. Like, you've got your camera on this mount that's got, you know, up, down, left, right swivels and and you know, the remote will will have controls for that. And those movements are not super smooth usually. Sometimes you kind of like try to ease into them, but then cut into the shot after you've started your move and cut out of the shot before the move ends. Right. Because that servo movement is very noticeable on camera. And there was a lot of that in this movie yeah. in, in a way that was a little distracting. Speaking of the music of this film... Nothing makes the tension of a dropped call more pronounced than the right soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> and you really get it here. Susan is John's wife. Susan is played by Jerry Ryan. And uh, why does John not call her was maybe my primary question in this scene. <laughs> he has escaped the cave just barely with his own life. And a friend of his has died there. And Susan has to call him. And and she's like getting a lot of this out of him yeah. by just like like she she's not even really interrogating him but like like he's letting slip the death of you know yeah like I had a real weird experience in the cave someone died I think every marriage has that that moment from time to time which is like god why is my partner just all up in my shit right now like I'm just trying to do this thing yeah. in this case very warranted get up in that <laughs> shit susan yeah, Susan is right to question her husband's weird spelunking addiction. Yeah. John, this is insane. You've got to stop this. The lead is buried about Paul dying, like very late in the conversation. And we hear a little bit about this curse against his family, which I guess is their family because they're married. Yeah, there's a curse and uh, getting this relic would pretty much uh, solve for curse. But she doesn't go in for that curse shit. She feels like he's nuts. Like, there's no evidence of this curse in this family, right? They live in this huge, fancy house. Well, I want to say, like, this sequence is cut between Susan's phone call and John in the RV. But did you see the body wrapped in a bag at the bottom of the stairs that that Susan walks past when she goes up? (laughs) There's a visual language in this film that makes you question whether or not what you're seeing is real. And that was the very first part for me, which was like, is that a statue? Yeah, it's like an alabaster statue of a nude woman on the landing of the grand stairway in their very fancy inner city brick mansion. Yeah. It's like... 
a nude woman like in fetal position on the ground, but holding up a wine glass. So this was not an apparition. This was not uh, evidence of the curse. This was a statue that they chose to be there. I totally interpreted this as tacky decoration. Wow. Because it also doesn't share any visual language with the like. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Other spooky imagery. I have to say it took me two and a half hours to watch this 98 minute movie, mostly because I was pausing and backing up to make sure I saw what I thought I saw in many of these scenes. (laughs) And if you're charging by the stream, I think that's intentional, right? Yeah, yeah. We had a scheduling mess up, so I had watched like the first half of this movie and decided to like save the rest for later when I realized we weren't going to be recording this episode on the day I thought we were. And I had taken a jazz gummy before starting the movie, and I really made it my business to take a jazz gummy and get right back to where... (laughs) I had been in my jazz gummy experience to start. You can't go back into that jazz gummy cave. Yeah. Like, like I wanted, I needed to start the movie back up like right, yeah. like in media jazz gummy uh-huh. so that it was like a continuous experience for me. Cause I'm, I'm writing copious notes about yeah. what's going on in this movie because the plot is very hard to follow despite it being like sparse in terms of twists and turns. So two things are established here. One of them, I guess, is wrong. This is a real statue and not an apparition. Mm -hmm. The second thing I noticed in this scene is that Jerry Ryan is giving this movie so much more than you would expect. She is on the phone, but she's not phoning her performance in. Absolutely. A good man died. He had a family, kids. She is a rock in this movie. She really is. And like the... Dialogue in this scene felt very written to me, Mm -hmm. very much like they were delivering the lines as they appeared on the page. And they're not sizzling dialogue, as far as I'm concerned. But Jerry Ryan really classes it up. I really wonder how much of the dialogue was improvised on set, like you were questioning. So much of this film feels like Jerry Ryan is... Like, I saw a bunch of these performances when I was in college. When the drama school got together, it was very clear who the best actor was in that performance. And I got that feeling from Jerry Ryan a lot in this movie as, like, the best actor in her drama production. (laughs) Kind of, like, blowing people away. Yeah. So, John is, uh, you know, he gets off the phone with Suze, and he's you know, in the car having little flashbacks to grisly things he saw in that cave and like devils standing in front of huge, you know, bonfires and stuff. And he starts coughing and it's like, maybe he's having a heart attack or something. And he wraps the front of his Chevy around a tree or at least he like pulls up to and parks in front of a tree (laughs) and they sped the footage up and then like added a puff of smoke and post. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a semi-modern Chevy. This is an accident where the airbags don't blow. (laughs) It's it's like a movie that had a $22 million budget, but they didn't spend any of that on destroying one $5,000 automobile. No, no. But John is very badly hurt, either in the accident or in whatever is going on with him physically up to the accident. 
And in that hospital he's taken to, he starts to code and there's a bunch of shit happening while he's shocked and pumped. They're really trying hard to bring him back to life. And Susan's there. The apparitions from the cave are there along with the doctors. The nurse gets a great... (laughs) I love this nurse who, once it becomes clear that all of her pumping is for not, like, gives one of the great no's. (laughs) No! In this entire movie. Like, she really wants him to live. If you're cast in this movie and they give you this opportunity, you give that no everything you've got. Because that, like, you know that that's, that's like going in the trailer, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. But then... Like, you think he's dead, and Susan's crying like he's dead. That The nurse says no, like he's dead. Yeah. Everyone is in agreement. He's dead. But then he wakes up. Yeah, for some reason, amidst him being dead, they keep cutting away to, like, images of, like, white people in tribal gear performing rituals in that weird room he was in inside the cave and, like, fighting with each other. If you enjoy the depiction of a child's throat being slit in a ritualistic fashion, you're going to see that footage four or five times in this movie. You're going to love this. You're going to absolutely love this movie if that's your thing. The doctor loves that John is fine. He wakes up, he's fine. Gives him an exam, he's better than fine. He's great. He is risen. (laughs) Remarkable. Yeah, John rolls the gurney from the entrance to the the room. (laughs) And he checks himself out of the hospital. He's not interested in any further care. Like, he's he's totally regenerated. His body is better than it was before. John, they're supposed to wheel you out in a wheelchair to discharge, buddy. Hospital policy. Uh-huh. On the drive home, Susan's driving. That's probably a good idea, right? Yeah. I mean, she's just got a nicer car, you know. <laughs> Boy, I'll say. She becomes possessed with a spirit that tells John about the evil they must confront. And it's a pretty spooky scene. Yeah. Didn't like to see that. What evil are you talking about? The evil evil you have done. What have I done? I think it's been stated on our shows many times that you don't like scary movies, Ben. And this is like the first point in the film to me that sort of started to move the needle toward like, I wonder how Ben's doing here. This movie did not get under my skin. Oh, that's good. I think that the production quality is better than it needs to be, and a lot of the acting is better than it needs to be, but it's so fucking ridiculous from (laughs) Jump that uh, I I wasn't, like, emotionally caught up in this film. Yeah, a lot of friends of DeSoto wondered whether or not watching Event Horizon was for them, but I would say to them, this is not that experience. No, this is... (laughs) This doesn't fuck me up like Event Horizon did. So uh, having seen his wife uh, possessed by some sort of satanic influence, John is like, let's go see our kids. There are a number of times in this film that you're kind of bumped into like what a reasonable person might do in a situation. (laughs) And this is one of those times where I'm like, the driver of the vehicle I'm in has been possessed by a demonic spirit. And if you're me, like if there's a flat tire... In the car, yeah. <laughs> I'd ask my wife, "Are you feeling good about driving me home right now?" Should we call AAA and um, I don't know an exorcist? Yeah. So they go to pick up their kids from school, and uh, we get a scene where where their daughter Dana is making out in the stacks. Yeah, their kids clearly go to a haunted school. Yeah, and. 
There's like an incredibly long, just like wandering around the the school aimlessly looking for his kid scene with John. Yeah, you're not really allowed to wander around many schools anymore, I don't think. Yeah, but John is, and like beating kids up. <laughs> when, when he finds Dana kissing this boy, he gets physical with like, a, I mean, like this is a 45-year-old actor, but playing a 17-year-old boy. <laughs> It's incredible. Two scenes in a row, dad roughs up this kid making out with his daughter, and then he thinks he's witnessing a drug deal out in the quad, and he punches his son's friend in the fucking face. And (laughs) so what has happened here in a span of a couple minutes is dad has assaulted two students on their own campus and then gets in the car with his family and his kids... I wouldn't say are irate about this or okay with it, but are like, fine with what's happened. (laughs) Yeah, I guess we'll get in the car, Dad, and go. It's going to be awkward to stay at school after you did that. (laughs) Yeah. So later on, like, we see his son's friend go back into the school and his face looks fine for being punched in the nose and thinking it's broken. Yeah. And everything he's seeing in the school gets pretty scary. (laughs) And the dude his daughter was making out with killed in an elevator like grotesquely disemboweled in the elevator elevator full of blood yeah you, you want to remind people that the shining exists when you're making this movie <laughs> and then the kid in the drug deal that wasn't a drug deal gets it too after going to the top of the stairs while fleeing all of these apparitions and you just can't go to the top of the stairs i don't think yeah. that's no way out of a building there's all these spooky devils up there, and we've seen these, like, these are the same devils that we're seeing in all of John's flashbacks. Right. Um, there's lots of different, like, configs. There's one that's got four horns, which I've never seen on a devil before. I do really like the devil costumes. And if you're wondering where this budget went, in addition to paying Shatner and Ryan, yeah, I think you're making some great costumes with that money. They're good. They're like yeah. genuinely scary looking and not a knockoff of another movie's devil costumes. Yeah. And there's a couple of effects shots where like one of them like has like predator mouth yeah. when it screams and that always looks pretty good. Yeah. Their roars are really bassy sounding. Pretty good stuff there. Yeah, they really blaster beam the roars. Yeah. In a great way. Yeah. Uh we're about 40 minutes into this movie, and I'm like, isn't Bill Shatner in this? Why haven't we seen him yet? Wasn't he in the opening credits? Like, didn't they show a clip of him in the opening credits? Yeah. To establish that he was the star of this movie? I love the decision to, like, let's do the credits from Predator, but up front. (laughs) (laughs) And on Hayes Horse Farm, we finally meet Shatner. He's John's dad. And... Shatner's accent really luxuriates in his R's. Yeah. He is the brand of tough dad who takes great umbrage with the idea that his son doesn't hit the baseball well and might be afraid of the ball also when he's in the field. You're not afraid. I won't allow it. He really has it out for his son here. Well, he's pissed because he's he's given up everything he owns to finance John's curse-ending project. Except all those horses and the horse farm. Yeah. And the and the cool the cool tractor he drives around later. Yeah. <laughs> he's like he's like, I've given up everything, uh, despite <laughs> the fact of obviously still being extremely comfortable. I've given up everything except the cool things. Right. 
he's very disappointed that John did not recover the relic. The relic is the key yeah. to ending this curse. The relic. And this goddamn relic I'm making you find is the curse. It needs to be destroyed by all of us. This scene, like, this is just pages and pages of dialogue for Shatner, and he goes all in on delivering this stuff. Like, yeah. he is bringing as much energy to his role as Jerry Ryan is to hers. If he's paid by the word, he's earning <laughs> a lot. So he gets into like his kind of grand theory of life, the universe, and everything, and touches on the topic of death. Death, Adam, not a punishment. It turns out death is the reward that you get for like getting through life. It's a very roadhouse type worldview, I think. Yeah, but then he's like, also, you're my son and I love you, but if you don't end this curse, I'll kill you. <laughs> it's like, you just got through saying that death doesn't is good. <laughs> Holidays must be very difficult with this type of dad. <laughs> son, I know this is a gift you've said you've always wanted, and if you don't like it, I'll kill you. Adam, if you had to guess whence this curse, what did this family get up to in the past to get them a curse? I mean, it sure seems like it's Bill Shatner's fault somehow. <laughs> it is explained that they are cursed because a, an ancestor in their deep past was a conquistador. Yeah. And like fucked with the, the locals in Mexico. Yeah. Fucking Aztecs. Montezuma. That's who. And somehow that's followed them to... To Kentucky. Kentucky. It is hard to follow, but it does sort of seem like maybe their family deserves this curse. <laughs> I mean, it seems like Hayes deserves this curse. He's a real son of a bitch. Yeah. You know who he reminded me of, Ben? Hmm. It was Maurice Hurley. He did kind of remind me. Yeah, it's almost like he's playing Hurley. Yeah, that's what I thought. Deeply unlikable. I love that he has like family photos and curse relics like up on the wall inside the horse barn so yeah. that they didn't have to do a company move to a different place where you would have that stuff. Great call. <laughs> I, I kept questioning in this scene how they didn't call this movie Montezuma's Revenge because <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's got to be a working title. <laughs> right? <laughs> that's how they got the financing. I bet in some translations, that's what it translates back into in English. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. He pulls out like a rifle and shoots a hole in the ceiling at one point to, to drive his point home. You're just going to have to go up there and fix it, Hayes. It's still your horse farm. <laughs> you haven't put it up yet. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, this fucking guy. <laughs> What a great introduction to him as a character. He really makes the case that he's the star of the film. <laughs> Definitively. That night, John has a bad dream and fortunately wakes up with Jerry Ryan. And I'm really hoping she has dreams about a normal life with a husband who isn't cursed. Doesn't seem fair to her that she's going through this. This cave is tearing us apart, Lisa. Don't worry about it. I still love you. Good night, Lisa. You know what detail that really bumped me out of this scene was like they get up and they do more exposition here and uh, their bedroom mirror is filthy. <laughs> and this is going to be hard to describe 
in an audio medium, but here's how the blocking works. They both get up out of bed and they approach the bedroom mirror and the camera angle is shooting at the mirror's reflection of Jerry Ryan and Jason Brooks's faces. And you see Jerry Ryan's hand stroke his back and also her other hand stroke his front and there is a discontinuity happening in my brain when I'm watching this scene because I'm seeing the backhand go up and down on the back and I'm seeing the chest hand go up and down at a different rate and it broke my fucking brain. Because they look like the same hand because yes. of the reflection. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, I've never seen a scene like this in a movie and it made me think about just how how much thought you need to put into a scene like this that involves mirrors because you've seen this blocking a thousand times. Like, look to mirror so you can see both actors' faces. This is in 10,000 movies, but I I can't remember ever seeing counter-moving hands in this way. It's, It's a very unsettling scene. It's also shot on, like, an incredibly wide lens that Mm -hmm. is distorting the... It's like, I mean, this is shot on... A pretty camera. It's it's beautifully color corrected and stuff. But the wide angle, like anamorphic lens that they are using in this scene stretches every vertical line into like a curving, like, you know, reverse parenthesis toward the middle of the frame. I mean, it kind of feels effective to tone and mood. Does it not? I agree, but it's like it's almost like sickening looking at this yeah. shot because like every every angle is wrong and like and then also the hands are like <laughs> those fucking hands <laughs> and the and the dirty ass mirror and like the creepy art that they have on the walls in their house and then the fact that like it turns into a horny scene because yeah. he's like all right like despite everything that's happened so far in the movie I'm I'm never going back to that cave yeah and like. That just floods the basement. He's like, it's over for me, spelunking in caves. I'm interested in doing a different sort of spelunking in some different (laughs) sort of caves. And then, like, as soon as they start making out, he changes his mind back. This dude sucks. Yeah, like, at least least satisfy your wife before you change your mind, right? Susan could take way more than half in the divorce and be fine. Like. They're living high on the hog here. What is she doing? Do you think she gets cursed through marriage? Is that like, is that why she has to be yoked to this mission? Yeah, because I think that the curse goes down to like the county hall of records and finds out whether you like are legally part of the same family now. And then, you know, the second the ink's dry on that, you're you're fucked. Those demons have a very hard time entering a federal building. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of shit to put through the x-ray. So he's like down in the garage, like filling his rucksack with caving equipment that he like carefully unpacked after getting home from dying in the hospital, yeah. <laughs> apparently. Yeah. And uh, Suze gets a call from his dad, Shatner, who seems to have sort of foreseen that there may be marital tension afoot in his son's life. Ben, I don't know anyone in a committed relationship who doesn't know this sort of horror of your partner receiving a phone call from one of your parents and not knowing what they're talking about. Your dad just called me. This is when this film turned into pure horror film. Yeah. What did he have to say? Absolutely terrifying. We don't see what they talk about. No, that's the worst part. We see the result, which is that Jerry Ryan 
comes downstairs like ready to go on a hike. She's in like a Patagonia vest and hiking boots and jeans. And she proposes a family spelunking trip. This often happens in committed relationships that have kind of gotten cold or boring Mm. in that like one of the parties gets tired of spelunking in the same cave. and And then the one who maybe doesn't feel attracted to or interested in is like well why don't we go explore like a third cave together like (laughs) maybe we can sort of spice things up like that i want to feel that new cave energy again and then it turns out that it was his dad that kind of convinced her (laughs) to open up the relationship to another cave maybe your father's right about one thing maybe destroying this thing will save us i was very distracted in this shot that the like garage shelving that they have has a game of cornhole on it. Oh. <laughs> this unsorted out garage drove me nuts. <laughs> I really wanted to pick it up and organize it. Oh man, you must hate my house. <laughs> I love your house. You have a wonderful house. I could never live that way though. Yeah. John feels pretty shitty about his his dad dictating his life. But uh it's time to go. And it's a family trip, Ben. Yeah. Load up the RV. We're heading to Black <laughs> Hollow Cave. They get in their family RV, and it is a real piece of shit. This this RV has seen better days. How does anyone who has this sort of estate in Kentucky have this kind of RV? Maybe they bought it, like, meaning to, like, make, like, a TikTok series about them fixing it up and making it, like, all chic and bougie but they just haven't gotten to that because they got to sort this curse out first. It looks like there is literal dog shit smeared on the side of it in some <laughs> I scenes. I wondered if like the production design department like actually like messed this RV up to make it look like this or if this was just the RV that the producers would give them the budget to get. Oh, I I fully believe it's the second one of those two options. Yeah. Daughter Dana has uh flipped through some of her grandfather's scrapbooks, which are on board the RV, he wrote a lot about this battle between the people of the sun and the people of the night, these ancient civilizations that really had it out for each other. And the people of the sun did some terrible things to the people of the night. And uh, the deployment of a special demonic soldier named Ainan was the worst part. Yeah. He, he's sort of like a, a mercenary. Could be a she. Hey, probably right. Women are crazy. Ainan was captured and then stored in the relic. Is that what it seems to be? Yeah, like there's that shot from like the f- flashbacks we keep seeing of the the tribal white people in the past, like holding the relic and like then all the demon people mm-hmm. like turn into bubbles and dissolve and then the relic starts to glow. Dana asks a bunch of exposition perfect questions here. Like she is really expediting what we need to know about the people of the sun and the people of the night. And she also seems to feel things when she looks at the book. But one thing she doesn't feel is any sort of sadness about her boyfriend that was murdered back at the school. (laughs) Neither does her brother, who mentions nothing about the friend of his that was punched in the face by their dad. Yeah, do they not know about these deaths yet? Or, like, do they not have cell phones? What we learn later answers these questions but there is so much time between the questions being asked and their eventual answers that you live in this doubt. 
of why aren't these people acting like normal people when put through trauma like this? It's just the the central flaw of this movie is like at no point does somebody make a decision that tracks based on the information you get before they announce their decision. Right. Top of the morning to you. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality. And this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code TREK50 at factormeals.com slash TREK50 to get 50% off. It has been a long time coming that podshop.biz is as good as it is. The stuff on there is just really high quality, and there's a ton of variety. We've got t-shirts and sweatshirts, obviously, but we've got hats, we've got mugs, we've got water bottles, patches, mouse pads, shower shoes. There's so much great stuff on there. I'm really proud of what we have on offer. I'm proud that the store has a lot of really great size-inclusive options. And uh, I think there's enough variety that just about any friend of DeSoto could find something that they'd really love to have in their collection at podshop.biz. So head over there and give it a look. Why don't you? Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. 
Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. So to break up the their travel to the cave, the RV pulls up to what looks like a funeral for Paul and RJ is out front pissed, so pissed that that John has brought the evil there. And I guess the evil is the RV. I guess John wasn't invited to this funeral. <laughs> Did RJ plan the funeral? Like I've never shown up at a funeral uninvited, but I got to believe if you did, this is how it would go, right? There's just a crowd of people out in front of the funeral looking very angry that they're there. You know, like there's this tense confrontation. Eventually, RJ is persuaded to let them through. John gives one of the great brief eulogies in film history here. (laughs) Paul was a good man. (laughs) Which I love. He was a friend of mine. RJ's like, I can't believe you showed up at this funeral with that dog shit smeared RV. (laughs) (laughs) You're not even dressed for a funeral. (laughs) Your RV smells like a, I mean, I'm just going to say it. It smells like a dead body. I can't think of any other comparison. It just smells like a dead body in there. They're not like trying to stop and pay their respects. They're like literally trying to get past this church on the narrow road so that they can continue on their trip. That is amazing. They've got to go through here. This is literally just they need to persuade the crowd to step out of the road so that they can keep driving. (laughs) So in another emotional incongruency, the RV arrives and the family disembarks and they are excited. They're so excited to be going on this adventure like they hadn't been stopped by a sad and angry funeral procession, like they haven't had uh, fellow students assaulted or maybe even killed at a school that they belong to. Everyone's like, oh, this is great. Suze keeps going like, oh, I just like we just needed a family trip. This is what we needed. We needed to get back together as a family. (laughs) There is a moment here that is so fucking funny to me. So we get a lot of scenes where the family is walking toward camera from the right side of the frame to the left, on and on. We're, we're shooting them. They're having a conversation, shot, reverse shot, what have you. And they get down to a raft at the bottom where, where there's a, a river that they need to traverse. They get on this raft. And then the visual logic of this movie, the raft goes back up the river from whence they came. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you 
spend so much time walking with him and also so much time in this raft. I... My jazz gummy was in full effect at this point, and I had to like rewind this and just rewatch it again because I was like, is my mind playing fucking tricks on me? I love the idea of having to take the raft and double back to get to the cave. <laughs> yeah, like this cave you can't get to from a road. It's a hell of a long walk through the woods. It's miles, so we better start now. You know, oh, we're going to lose daylight if we don't start now. And then they get to the raft and they just get like, it, like the camera pans over from the RV past the lake to the to the cave. I think I know how this happens. And I think this happens in the productions where you don't have a lot of storyboarding going on. Like you get to location and you're just shooting coverage and shit. Yeah, you're just like, okay, we need them walking. or They're just going to walk like from over here to over here and I'll jump over this log. Because you can storyboard your way out of this problem happening yeah. before it starts. So, yeah, it's a long-ass walk to the cave. They finally get there. They're still going on. Like, Susan is still going on about, like, ah, oh, this is just great, right? Like, spending time together as a family. The lights of this cave and their spotlights, the lighting of this entire film, I think, is, is one of its strongest points. It really looks amazing. It really does. So they're walking through these ca the cave, and we're now... Like, they've gone through several other caves to get here. Susan gets a little uncomfortable with John. She's like, ah, wrong cave, John. Wrong cave. Yeah, but they're finally at the main cave, and we're seeing the same, like, chambers that they were in at the beginning of the movie now. Mm -hmm. uh, I noticed that there was some graffiti on one of the walls yeah. in this cave, <laughs> which was... Uh, Unfortunate for establishing it as a cave nobody ever goes in because you'll get murdered by demons if you go in there. Well, I think it holds together that it's like closer to the mouth of the cave that you would run into this. I guess so, yeah. They get to that same spot where Paul uh, took the tumble at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, watch your step. And these kids just, their caving skills are way better than Paul and RJ's. Like they, they don't miss a beat. They, they get down this. I think the kids would have been cheaper too than Paul was, right? Yeah, you just pay them like, oh, like I'll double your allowance this month if exactly. you come on this caving demon murdering trip with me. This is the moment in the film where I was like, wait, when is this? This is 2019. Where are these kids' cell phones? Like they should be selfieing the shit out of themselves <laughs> when they get to the ceremonial chamber and there's all these skulls and axes and, and shit around. But they don't right. do that here. They do that later. They miss some great funeral selfie opportunities. Yeah. I mean, anytime I come upon a pile of skulls, I'm going to go in for that selfie. I'm going to Lindy England that, <laughs> that pile of skulls. Well, I mean, they were for PSYOP reasons, and the reasons worked. But they find the relic. The relic is right there on the altar. And uh, I thought that was interesting. Like, it was like lying on the ground next to the altar in at the beginning. But now it's up there. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Boy, it's like an Oscar, you know? It's so much heavier than you think it's going to be, you know? It's glowing uh, in a very pleasing way. That's nice. Yeah. Kind of looks like a, maybe like a monkey. Where's the sun, Ben? Yeah. Where did he go? That's what I'm wondering. And he's off taking selfies when the horde approaches. Yeah. And this isn't good. You know, so like the story is like the sun people like enslaved the night people and the night people you know, prayed to their gods and their gods didn't answer. So, you know, any port in a storm, they prayed to the devil and the devil sent these guys. And, and here they are to, you know, terrorize this family. And 
terrorize they do. It's like a fucking Guar concert. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, like John's gun is useless, and there's like blood and cum being sprayed all over the audience. Yeah, the creeps are all around them. We witness the assassination of John's family and the fleeing coward of John, leaving them behind. Well, I mean, in his defense for running, they are dead. There's not much he can do right. at that point. He has a revolver, and later he says something about, like, I emptied a whole clip into that guy. And I was like, I don't know anything about guns, and I know that this movie is wrong about that. Your firearms are useless against them! <laughs> I've fired a gun before. I've never fired a gun in a cave, but I can tell you that if you were to do that, you would be immediately deafened. Holy shit. <laughs> like, he's got a fucking cannon, and he shoots it many times. Yeah. And it, they should be in so much pain from this. His dirty, hairy gun should, like, all of the demons should be like, ow, God, <laughs> ow, my ears. <laughs> this is why Indiana Jones didn't have a family, right? Because John runs away. He has to run away. Yeah. But, uh, God, the guilt. John gets back to the RV and has a Scotty-style breakdown from Boogie Nights. Just totally freaks out on himself. I'm a fucking idiot. He left a bullet in that gun for himself, didn't he? Yeah. He uh, Now, amidst all this excitement and demon fighting, I kind of lost track of how many bullets I fired. Was it <laughs> five or six? <laughs> Let's find out together. The question my frontal lobe has to ask itself is, does it feel lucky? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, a very well-timed cell phone rings here, and it's his dad. Saved by the bell. Yeah, his dad is like, has again kind of intuited something that might be going on and uh, is in like an ATV with a with a roof, like a, I don't know, like a dune buggy kind of car. Can't sell that. Can't sell it, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> gotta keep it. No, gotta keep it. So he's... Rolling around in the in the backwoods, and he's like, 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 what's going on? And John's like, they're dead. My family's dead. And, I, and he's like, you left them? You left them in the cave? And he's like, yeah, no, like I said, they were dead. So better that I run and save myself at that point. John's family has been left in a cave. <laughs> a family unit is typically made up of two adults and whatever children they have. This cave has two speed wells in a U-shaped bar with a performance space in the back. You just left your family there? How could you do that? I know they look it, but your kids aren't over 21. This is illegal. You're going to get shut down. Oh, what a relief, right? Family's still alive. Not a relief is that John is dragged from his RV by these devil apparitions and they take the relic from his hands. Yeah, it's like they they just kind of like mug him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They have those big swords. Why didn't they hit him with the swords? Maybe because they knew RJ was was inbound with a like pitchfork wielding mob of insurrectionist looking guys. So they were like, oh, we'll let them take care of him. How clear were you on the passage of time between the relic being taken from John and RJ's church group rolling up on him? And roughing him up. An old dude has a hammer? Yeah. And RJ has a machete? Why did you bring a hammer and a machete to a funeral, guys? <laughs> Can't dig a very deep grave with a hammer and a machete, guys. They're literally getting ready to, like, ISIS his head off 
when Shatner shows up and says, like, no, don't do that. Shatner has a special power here to disperse the mob. Yeah. Go on home. So John, like, hallucinated the death of his family, I guess. And, and So let me get this straight. To emphasize his point, Shatner shoots at the roof of his own horse barn with his son. Right. And does not use a gun to disperse a crowd from beating up or possibly killing his kid. The crowd that is literally getting ready to chop his kid's head off. <sighs> I don't know. Don't know about that, Dad. RJ and and gang get what's coming to them when a crowd of demons set upon them in the forest and just cut them to pieces. I love uh, John and uh, Shatner. I'm just going to keep calling Hayes Shatner. Yeah. They definitely hear these screams. (laughs) They don't pay them any mind, though, because Hayes has something he's got to show his son. Another thing that he did not sell, a box of grenades and a grenade launcher. (laughs) And on top is an iPad that uses army satellites to find his not dead family in the cave. He's an elite hacker. He knows how to track people that are deep underground. A grenade launcher fired in a cave is just slightly more dumb than firing a large caliber handgun in the cave, right? Toys that make noise give soldier boys courage. No character is going to hear anything again for the rest of their lives if they're lucky enough to survive this. Yeah, so so now armed to the teeth, Shatner and John re-enter the cave to rescue John's family. Like, no editing on this sequence to, like, shorten up the path into the cave that we've seen over and over again at this point. It's incredible. Shatner is almost 90 during the production of this film, and you see him scrabbling through this cave. You see him holding a grenade launcher at a distance with a bandolier of grenades wrapped around his arm like he's fucking John Rambo. Yeah. It's amazing. Personally, I think this little operation is going to be a showstopper. There is a stand-in for Shatner that's in some of the wide shots that is not well covered up, but uh, I think they did a great job of like actually like getting enough shots of Shatner doing yeah. physically demanding things that are really impressive. And like they get to the middle of this cave and they haven't quite like locked down safety W slash R slash T family yet. Uh-huh. When Shatner just starts fucking pumping grenades into onrushing demons. Like he has an unlimited supply of them. This to me is why you do this movie. This scene. <laughs> If Shatner's like, do I get to shoot a grenade launcher at close range against demons? Oh, yeah? Great. Sign me up. Are there going to be demons that appear to be like 10 or 15 feet (laughs) max away from my character (laughs) that I shoot multiple times with grenades? Yeah? Great. Awesome. Perfect. If this film were ever in a theater, and I highly doubt it was, this gets you up out of your seat. (laughs) (laughs) This is a moment. So he he mows down like a bunch of demons and there's kind of like a main demon, like a demon mm-hmm. that is obviously the lead demon. Yeah. And it comes out from behind a column with a giant sword in one hand and the glowing relic in the other hand. And Shatner doesn't hesitate. He, he, <laughs> he hits the demon. Don't just stand there. Go get it. John runs up and grabs the relic and 
they run away and they really quickly find the family. Mm -hmm. And now it's time to like hide from the rest of the demons in a nook of the cave together. While they like are are like, oh, I'm so glad to see you, Dad. Also, why did you abandon us? John has a very hard time convincing his son to get the fuck out of the cave. He's as scared as maybe he's ever been. Eric wants to stay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like the idea of leaving Shatner behind alone. And I mean, these demons seem like they're going to get one over on him. Yeah. There's so many of them. And eventually one gets him from behind. A ceremonial decapitation appears likely at this point. Yeah. And while this demon is standing over Shatner, getting ready to drop a bladed weapon through Shatner's neck, John picks up the grenade launcher and shoots that demon, <laughs> blowing it up, but not hurting Shatner at all. No. <laughs> no. That's because these grenades are jellies. <laughs> this is amazing. Shatner did not only bring a grenade launcher. He brought a bag within his bag that contained a time bomb. So yeah. when Shatner tells John to get the fuck out of the cave with his family, they do. They listen, but it's unclear whether or not they know what's about to happen. Shatner triggers the time bomb, which takes him out yeah. in the cave. I love that he just like reaches into the bag and touches something. Yeah. Like they don't they never show this time bomb in a wide shot. I'm pretty sure that the numbers counting down is stock footage that they just purchased because they did not make this prop. They didn't have no. it in the budget yeah. to make the time bomb prop. Yeah. It cuts together really well though. It does. So they they like we get our classic them escaping the cave just as the explosion was about to overtake them. And there's like a pretty good rocks collapsing and shutting the cave in sequence. Yeah, I think this is all right. What bumps a person, what bumped me, was the family celebration. Like they didn't just watch grandpa die in there. <laughs> They're like all high-fiving and saying, ah, oh, family trip. I'm just so glad we got to do another one of these. It was awesome. And now we own a horse farm. So uh, things are going great for us. Unclear how they uh, go upriver again, drop the raft off, go in the opposite direction, up the trail, back up to the <laughs> RV. Uh, we skip over all of that. We, we've driven the RV back through the church. Yeah, No one's at the church waiting for them. They're all dead, maybe. Yeah, And they finally make it back home. To like an alley? To a row of garages that would not be able to fit this RV inside. Yeah. <laughs> They go inside with the relic. <laughs> the way to destroy the relic is to cut it in half with a miter saw in John's garage workshop area. You're going to want to place your relic <laughs> into the fence of the miter saw and then at high speed drop the blade through the center. <laughs> We've set this blade for a 90 degree cut through this relic to minimally show how plastic it obviously is. Oh, he just showed the cross-section of the relic to the camera? Okay, never mind, never mind. You know, fuck me for suggesting it, right? Good work, Pop. This scene is great because the tension of what's going to happen when he saw us through it is so present. I was like, I've been so surprised throughout this movie that like, I'm waiting for the saw blade to touch it and anything happens at that point. I know. 
<laughs> I could not believe that he's just able to saw it in half. And then when they throw it into the fireplace later, I'm like, oh, you can't do that. Something crazy is going to happen here. <laughs> I'm stress edging like for the rest of the film. Like what's going to happen now? Any other writer would have had something happen at one of those two moments. And the fact that nothing happens is like absolutely mind boggling. Yeah. Later on at the family kitchen table, Eric thanks his dad for taking him on just a great trip. Thanks, dad. That was awesome. What it's really about at the end of the day is families coming together to destroy an ancient relic that is for some reason related to a curse on them, partially because of a curse from their Spanish conquistador ancestors, but also to do with devils that were summoned by night people in some kind of like tribal war that didn't have anything to do with that. I mean, this scene isn't about that. (laughs) John instead eulogizes his father for his sacrifice, his stupid, idiotic sacrifice, and then leaves his son to go uh, tuck his daughter into bed, thanking her for being her, assuring her that everything's going to be all right. And that night in bed with Jerry Ryan, John tells Suze, That he keeps thinking about his dad on the day of his death by explosion. How can you not? Yeah. Can't stop thinking about him. In many ways, that's the most important thing that happened today. (laughs) I mean, I know we also ended a centuries-long curse and like fought a bunch of demons. You know, I just can't stop thinking about my dead dad who we watched explode inside a cave today. I, I don't know why I can't get that out of my head today, the day that that happened. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be like... God, I can't get over how socially awkward that fucking funeral was. Like, I, I'm i going to be, like, cringing about that for the rest of my life. Like, lying awake in bed at night thinking about that fucking humiliating experience. John rolls over to Susan and he's like, you know, uh, I'm actually not done totally annihilating the opening of a cave. If you know, <laughs> if you, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Just going fucking ham yeah. on the mouth of a cave. You know what I'm saying? Hun? Really blowing that shit up. He's like, Suze, you know how I didn't get the approval I crave from my father? (laughs) I've got a certain cave I have in mind for taking that out on. (laughs) You know, I kind of want to pump round after round of explosive ordnance inside the nearest cave. (laughs) Have any ideas of where I could do that? (laughs) She gets up out of bed. Turns around. Oh, fuck. She's a devil again. Oh, I hate this. Yeah. Uh, It's never going to be over, is it? No. Turns out we're back in the hospital, and uh, this is all something he's going through as they're rolling his gurney. (laughs) We get another scene with that nurse yelling no, which I was very grateful for. (laughs) No! No! (laughs) Yeah. They really rule of twos that no. (laughs) 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 yes so all that really happened in this movie is this guy went into a cave one of his employees got killed he got in a fight with his wife and then crashed into a tree and died yeah yeah so there was a kind of uh it was all a dream yeah aspect to this and he didn't get the approval of his father no he never did he died without it i mean his approval from his father was like the fantasy. 
right. like the pre-death fantasy. Right. But it wasn't real. Damn. So John's dead. And now that he's dead, Shatner's proud of him. So it was John's stupid, idiotic sacrifice. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. John got taken out by that tree. He didn't even get stabbed by a, a devilish apparition. Yeah, it was the tree that done it. Death comes with a crawl or comes with a pounce. And whether he's slow or spry, it isn't the fact that you're dead that counts, but only how did you die? Edmund Vance Cook. That's the quote at the end of the movie. Well, Edmund, John died in a slow speed car accident. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like this movie, Ben? <laughs> I bought this movie uh, uh, for digital streaming so that we could wow. watch it for this show. Because I did think that there was a possibility I wasn't going to finish it in one sitting, and I wasn't sure. You know, we got to buy it again for Wendy, for the clips. Yeah, because there's, yeah, like the rental, maybe it was four bucks to rent it or 12 bucks to own it. And I was like... The over-under is right at three of the number of times I'm going to have to turn this movie on mm -hmm. over the next mm -hmm. few days. So I think it like is better money to buy it. Look, man, with a $22.5 million budget, we're just doing our part, all right? We got to help them recoup. <laughs> we're helping make Jason Cohn <laughs> whole again. I'm, I presume that all of this came out of his pocket. I don't think I will ever watch this movie. It's it's really high on the redonkulometer mm -hmm. for me. It's so silly. Like I I wanna like send it to our buddies at the flop house and listen to an episode about them. Cause like I it it feels like the kind of movie they watch all the time for their show yeah. and are so good at tearing apart and like talking about all of the ways in which the films are ridiculous and like I almost never go out of my way to like watch these bad movies because I don't have the same love of bad movies that they do. But right. I love hearing them talk about those. And I would love to hear them talk about this one in particular now that I have seen one of these because holy mackerel. <laughs> I mean, I cry laughed three times doing this episode with you. <laughs> and if watching movies like this is what it takes, sign me up. <laughs> this, this is a really fun experience. <laughs> I'm with you, Ben. Like rewatchability re wise, not for me. I like picking up a genre film every once in a while, like this. I look on the positive side, fit and finish is really great and like enviable. I don't know, like I can't help but see Jared Cohn's career as like a a career path people take when they go to film school and they want to just fucking work. Yeah, he took the path and he's made fifty films. And this is a really good looking film. There's a lot to like about it for all its ridiculousness, but like you got to decide where your budget goes and fit and finish is where it went and their actors are where it went. I really wonder what would happen if, if this got a little more of a shine script wise. And if maybe Maurice Hurley wasn't its writer, because I don't think that he's a very good writer. And more than that, I don't think that he's a very good communicator in all of the interview footage that we've seen from him, nothing about him reads as a skilled storyteller. Like, I know he's got a bunch of credits in the 70s and 80s and stuff, and good for yeah. him. But, like, think about the shallow well of talent 
that was working at the time. Like there were just not that many people doing what he did. And I think one of the great things about making films today is there's such a wealth of talent. Like there's so many people making films and there are so many different voices making them that like, I think a guy like Maurice Hurley probably wouldn't make it today. Yeah. And and I think that's fine. Yeah, like having seen Chaos on the Bridge and this movie, I it is hard for me to square the existence of both in my head because mm-hmm. in many ways it sort of feels like this is Shatner doing a solid for his buddy. Or his family. Yeah, and like your head spins about like how he could do Maurice Hurley so dirty if Maurice Hurley is his friend as to like depict him as basically the villain mm-hmm. of Chaos on the Bridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, the mind reels. I cannot, I just can't figure out how did this get made? I mean, let's tie it up like this, Ben. What did we learn about Jerry Ryan in the experience of watching this movie? I think personally, I gained a lot of respect for her professionalism in that she and the cinematographer of this film were the main things that made this film watchable. Yeah. And that is not to like diminish everyone else at all. It's just like they were the unique properties of this. And Jerry Ryan doesn't need to bring 10 out of 10 effort to something that very few people are going to see. But she did. And that makes me respect the hell out of her. I feel the same way. I mean, I think that the plight of an actor is that you have so little control over the parts you're going to be offered and the words said by the characters in those parts. You're really, you know, interpreting other people's creations and, you know, creating performances based on them, but your career can go any different direction. Like the actors that really get to call their shots and pick movies that are only flattering to their egos are few and far between. And I respect the hell out of a Jerry Ryan that has been on a bunch of very respected shows and done, you know, award-winning acting that could be resting on her laurels and instead works. She's done tons of like really highbrow stuff. She's done tons of really lowbrow stuff. It's clear that she just likes acting and wants to like go do good acting every time, you know, like she goes, she wants to work all the time. Total pro. She wants to do good work. Yeah. I'm glad we watched this movie to fully recognize that. Yeah. I hope they give her a series, you know? Yeah. Hope so too. If she wants it. I mean, that's a part of it too. Like, yeah. Don't fucking bug her. Yeah. Or like guilt her into doing a series if she doesn't want to do it. Okay. Let her decide that. Okay. Yeah. All right. We should check, uh, see if we have any P1s. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, we've got a couple of priority one messages here. The first is of a promotional nature, and it goes like this. We learned that attorney ads go bus bench, bus, billboard. This P1 presupposes that the best is an embarrassing Star Trek podcast. I'm in. Are you a pilot that idolizes Detmer? Idolize B-Dunks? Have you ever landed on a glacier recently? Crashed on a giant spider planet? Test flown a shuttle and become a slug? Crashed a Borg cube into a planet? Given the Borg queen your ship? I can help. I'm a California slash Nevada licensed attorney. Sutterville Law Group.com. 
FOTs get 10% off and a half-hour consult. Wow. So Sutterville Law Group sounds like they specialize in uh, aviation-related lawsuits. A perfect five-star rating in Google reviews. Hey. Check this guy out. The friends of DeSoto are doing classy work. I wish I were a licensed pilot. Yeah. Friend of the program, uh, Uncle Pete Pranica, he's a licensed pilot. No kidding. I should hip him to Sutterville Law Group. So uh, it's SuttervilleLawGroup.com, and if you're a friend of DeSoto that is a licensed pilot, get in touch. Hey, let's uh, let's give Sutterville uh, a couple of free reads here for their radio ads. Okay. Have you been in an airplane accident where you have been injured or experienced a loss of property? Has this ever happened to you? Have you maybe been rear-ended in an airplane or gotten into an airplane-to-airplane accident in midair? Have you ever asked if you could buzz the tower and they said no? Has this ever happened to you? If so, Sutterville Law Group is ready to be your attorney. SuttervilleLawGroup.com. Say you're a friend of DeSoto to get 10% off and a half-hour consult for free. Sutterville Law Group will make sure to land your trial on the runway of a good decision (laughs) where you get... You get the maximum payout. Sutterville Law Group. Has this ever happened to you? (laughs) Then our second priority one message is of a personal nature. It's from Joe. It's to Anne. Message goes like this. To she who is my wife, there is no one with whom I would rather conquer the Alpha Quadrant or share my life with than you. Kamusha! Or in Terran... I love you. Yay. Yeah, that's nice. That's a sweet message to Anne. What a nicely stated message of love in both Klingon and Terran. Yeah, that's nice. Really nice. Special. This was uh, targeted for March 15th. Sorry we missed that by a little bit. But a good reminder to friends of DeSoto that want to get a P1 on the show, try to plan ahead by a few months because... Uh, you're more likely to get your target date if you do so. P1s are a great way to support the production of our shows, and we really appreciate everyone who does one. Really want to shout out Joe and Anne and Sutterville Law Group for getting a P1 on this particular episode. <laughs> well done to everyone involved. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself in Edward Larkin? It's got to be John. Like, John is the the central chaos agent of the whole story. John's making decisions that don't make sense for anyone. <laughs> he doesn't seem to care about his family, except he utterly seems to care about his family and its curse. I don't know. I, I can't choose anyone besides him. I'm, I'm gesturing toward the past hour and a half. Yeah. That's the reason. Yeah. I mean, he's one of three non-devil, non-imagined characters in the film. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> no, I guess I guess Susan is real also. Right. Because he talks to her on the phone. But so little of this story happens. Yeah. The story ends when, when the truck hits the tree. I hate to disagree with you, Adam, but my Edward Larkin is Suze. Mm. Just because the like vibe that she had on the hike and the beginning of the cave trip 
was so out of sync with the shit that was going on. That's tough. She's like, my husband is either losing his mind or is about to fight like an awesome ancient evil. (laughs) And I am like psyched to be just spending time with my family. It's so great. (laughs) I just, oh my God, I was flipping out every time she said that. Well, Ben, as if this very episode might qualify uh, as one of these warning boys as a segment that we do at the end of every Greatest Trek episode. A warning boy is a description for a message sent by a friend of DeSoto out into the ether that either encourages a new viewer or warns them against even trying. Prepare a buoy and launch it when ready. Warning boys. An emergency buoy. A warning buoy. It's true, Adam. I owe you a warning, Bois, and today is a, is going to be a, a direct message warning, Bois, because uh, this was just a funny loop that was closed. Uh, we were talking, I can't remember if it was on Greatest Gen or Greatest Trek, but we mentioned the time we were invited to come do a live performance at like the lunchroom at Google's headquarters. Yeah, I was pretty dismissive about that. <laughs> I was kind of shitty about it. We turned them down because they didn't offer to pay us or even like pay for our travel, I think. Yeah. Or maybe they offered to pay for our travel. I can't remember. But I think you were living in New York at the time even. Yeah. And I was like, cool, free trip or something. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, a friend of DeSoto, who I'll, uh, I'll leave their name out of it, reached out and said, thanks for the shout out and giving me a somewhat of my own yesterday's enterprise feeling. Although I was never part of your cast, nor would I want to leave. Yeah, Google sucks, and I have not been with them for years. This is the person that was inviting us. Wow. I'm glad this person still listens. I know. I, I, that, like, that's the biggest shock of all. Yeah. So they go on to say, I have found myself in the L.A. area working in the industry, meaning the film production business. Wow. My company got to work on two seasons of Picard. What? So that is cool. I hope that one day I can fulfill your dreams of being in Star Trek and being thrown out an airlock. That is amazing. What a great career track for this person. Yeah. Got off of the big tech rat race. And uh, in, I mean, I've heard that the VFX business is is a tough one to work in. And mm-hmm. I sort of, am I imagining things or did you interpret that as being a person that works in VFX? Uh, yeah, I, I kind of got that from this. Yeah. I guess it doesn't say it explicitly, so maybe I'm wrong there. But yeah, the uh, <laughs> that's a tough business. That's a, a tough line of work to be in. Yeah, we wish that friend of DeSoto well. And uh, I was proud of our decision not to uh, dance for no money back in the day when we decided to uh, decline the offer. Sure. That was a, a big learning moment for me because I was like, yeah, let's definitely do it. And you you really made the case that like we're worth more than that. I, I continue... To try to impress that upon you, Ben. (laughs) Maybe someday you'll get the fucking hit. If you'd like to show up in the Warning Bois segment, post about us online, you know, mention the show on a social media platform and tag Greatest Trek or use the hashtag Greatest Trek. It really helps get the word out about our show and uh, we really appreciate it. And you might hear your, your words coming out of our mouths one day. All right, Ben, spring break for Greatest Trek continues next week. Hard to top this episode that we just did, (laughs) but uh, we will embark on a different type of descent, a descent into comfort viewing for you. Yeah. 
from what I've heard. That's right, Adam. Another beloved Star Trek cast member appeared on several episodes of Cheers, a three-episode arc, in fact. So we're going to be watching season four, episodes 24 through 26 of Cheers to see a young Kate Mulgrew appear on that program. How about that? I can't say that I've seen these episodes, so I'm looking forward to it. I don't think I have either. Yeah. I am too, and uh, that'll be next week. In the meantime, we're going to throw the keys to Wendy. She'll take us home with some credits. Greatest Trek is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. It's hosted by Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica, and it's produced and edited by Wendy Pretty. Looking forward to next week's review of Cheers. You can find those episodes online in a lot of different places, including Paramount Plus and Hulu, among others. The music that you're hearing right now and throughout the show was composed by Adam Ragusea. He has a podcast and a YouTube cooking channel that we highly recommend. Just search for Adam Ragusea. Nick Dittmore created the show art, and Bill Tilly manages the at Greatest Trek social media pages on Instagram, Twitter, and Mastodon. Make sure you're following those accounts and use the hashtag Greatest Trek when you talk about the show online. You can also find Friends of DeSoto on Facebook, Reddit, and on Discord at DrunkShimoda.com. Thanks to the members who are supporting the ongoing production of this show. If you want to pitch in and get a load of bonus content from Ben and Adam, you can set up your membership at MaximumFun.org slash join, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Greatest Trek. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.